You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening. Welcome to the Jewish Matters podcast. And tonight in our Extraordinary Jewish Personality series, we're going to be talking about the Rav, Rabbi J.B. Soloveitchik, Joseph Bear Soloveitchik, Tradition and Modernity. The Rav bridged two worlds, the tradition world of European Jewry and Talmudic study and intellectualism, and the world of modernity, the world of the second half of the 20th century, uh, a world which saw changes in society, the 1960s, a world which saw upheavals through the Cultural Revolution, and, um, and a world which he navigated and became the figurehead of what came to be known as modern orthodoxy in America. And he also came to be recognized as one of the greatest Talmudic minds of the second half of the 20th century. He was, though, according to himself, he saw himself primarily as a Malamed, as a teacher of Torah, although we'll see that he played a significant communal role in directing the Jewish community into the 20th century. And at Yeshiva University, I overlapped with him. Uh, My first two years were his last two years there. And by that time, he was much older and slowing down. I did go to one Talmud class, uh, which I could not understand. He spoke very low at that point, and already his Talmud classes were very difficult. I was a novice, and, uh, but I did have the experience of praying with him in a minyan. And what was characteristic of him and his family is that even during the silent prayer, they would pray in a relatively out loud manner. And I got to experience that as well. And to see his figure around the campus, always surrounded by a wedge of students and his soft manner and disposition. So who was Rabbi uh, Yasha Bear? He was known as sometimes JB or simply the Rav. He came from an illustrious rabbinic family. And not just any rabbinic family, the Soloveitchik family. His grandfather, Rabbi Chaim Soloveitchik, had paved a new, not a new, a, uh, had developed a more conceptual way of studying Talmud. His great-great-grandfather was the Nitziv, the head of the yeshiva in Volozhin, founded by his great-great-great-great-grandfather, Rabbi Chaim Volozhin, who was a student of the Vilna Gaon. And in the yeshiva world, the ultra-Orthodox, sometimes known as Mitnagdik world, Misnagdik world, uh, Rav Chaim Volozhin was the founder of the model of the yeshiva, of the modern yeshiva. And his grandfather is revered as one of the great Talmudic minds. And we'll see that he had really, uh, his father and then him, paved their own path in terms of their outlook on life and philosophy. As a young age, he was already recognized as excelling in Talmud, although he says that in school he was not considered brilliant because he was always honest about what he knew and would admit when he didn't. Uh, But his father started studying with him privately because he recognized his great potential. 
And as a teen, when people met him, when great rabbis met him, they recognized that this would become one of the great uh, Talmudic teachers and minds. Uh, He uh, studied mostly with private tutors and did graduate from high school, although it appears he took the exams but did not sit in on classes. His mother, who came from the family of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, another great rabbinic family, uh, would give him novels to read, Tolstoy, Dostoevsky, and introduced him to Western culture. And at the time when the Haskalah, the Jewish Enlightenment, had made ravages across Eastern Europe, many families were reticent to have their children exposed to modern culture, but his mother wasn't. And so uh, when they moved to Warsaw, he started in university there. Now, we also have to mention that the town he grew up in, Kaslavici, interestingly enough, had a majority uh, population of Lubavitch, Hasidim. Uh, however, his father, Rabbi Moshe Soloveitchik, was the rabbi there. And so when he was very young, he uh, took on a Hasidic, a Lubavitch Chabad teacher to teach the young boy Torah and Talmud. And the story goes that when his father wasn't around, they would put away the Talmuds, they would take out the Tanya, the book of Chabad philosophy and mysticism and almost Kabbalah. And he speaks fondly about those experiences. And he says about uh, Reb Baruch, who was his Malamed, his teacher, he said, he taught me something no one else taught me. He taught me how a Jew can be imaginative in religious matters. He showed us how to see a vision and make it come to life. Joseph's brothers asked him, quoting a Talmudic, uh, a Torah story, his teachers challenged them, saying, Joseph's brothers asked, uh, Joseph asked his brothers, is our father still alive? And Rabbi Soloveitchik's teacher took this line and said to them, do you have a father? Do you have roots? Do you know where you came from? Are you connected to the values of who you are? And he made this line come alive for him. This is his memory that he shares. After going to university in Warsaw for a year, Rabbi Soloveitchik moved to Berlin. And Berlin was really the cosmopolitan center of Europe at that time in the 1930s. And um, in the late 20s, early 30s. And in in Berlin, there were some figures who would become, later become great rabbinic figures. Uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Hutner, uh, the Lubavitch Rebbe, who he had contacts with in Berlin, uh, Rabbi Yaakov, Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg, uh, great minds who found uh, a like-minded approach of Uh, While he was in university, he was constantly immersed in Talmud in a very engaging way, but he also was very engaged in his philosophical studies. And he wound up writing his doctorate about Hermann Cohen, a a Jewish neo-Kantian philosopher. And we'll see this theme of Rabbi Soloveitchik's philosophical teachings and writings come out uh, as we look at his life unfolding. In 1932, in 1931, he met uh, Tonya Levitt 
and they were married. And in 1932, he left for Boston. And he was supposed to come to the United States to be in a yeshiva in Chicago shortly before leaving, or when he came here, he got word that the position was no longer available, the Great Depression had hit, and so he was uh, given a position in Boston running the Rabbinical Council. And even though in that time, the next 10 years, he would found the Maimonides School, which would be a what we call a Jewish day school, starting with young grades and eventually becoming a high school. But really he was involved in local rabbinic matters and primarily in kosher, which was very divisive, political, and uh, very difficult to maneuver in the 1930s. And he wasn't, uh, he had many people who uh, were very, mad at him because he demanded exacting standards for kosher. In 1935, he entertained the position of chief rabbi of Tel Aviv and traveled to Israel. And he met Rav Abraham Isaac Cook at the time, and he would be uh, not, the position was one that was voted on, and he was not elected as chief rabbi at the time. Somewhat of a disappointment. However, we'll see, it won't be till another 20 years uh, that he goes to Israel. Uh, 10 years later, he was offered the position again, turned it down, unless they would not, uh, they would appoint uh, through process other than voting. 20 years later, he would be offered the position of chief rabbi of Israel after the first chief rabbi, Rabbi Isaac Herzog passed away. And interestingly enough, at that point, he declined the position. And perhaps he understood that with the position came politics as well. And he wanted to be a teacher of Torah. But we'll talk about his passion for Israel and for Zionism. In 1941, his father, who was the main rabbi at Yeshiva University, passed away. And the president of Yeshiva University, Rabbi Shmuel Belkin, was elderly, and there was talk of bringing him on to become the next president of Yeshiva University. And he uh, refused that position. However, he did accept the position as the main Rosh Yeshiva, the head of the Yeshiva, and he wanted to dedicate his life to teaching. And that's what he would do for the next 40 years. And at Yeshiva University, uh, he uh, insisted that the Yeshiva uh, became, in a sense, almost a separate affiliate when the university became, uh, started taking government money and had to incorporate. He insisted that Yeshiva be autonomous in terms of making its own decisions, not influenced by the university. And a number of years later, when the girls' school was going to be moved up to the campus uptown Manhattan, he absolutely refused and uh, blocked that move and said that the two schools had to be on different campuses. Now, it's very interesting because we'll talk about his outlook on women's issues as part of modernity. He founded the Maimonides School, which was a mixed boys and girls school in the 1930s. 
and uh, the classes were mixed, as was the school population. Uh, and why he accepted a high school that was mixed, yet wouldn't even allow women and women on the same campus, even if they were in separate classes, is a matter you could speculate about. And this is very interesting because there are many questions which will arise uh, regarding Rabbi Soloveitchik's approach towards modernity. At the same time he embraced it, at the same time he was a traditionalist. And he will weave a path which is not uh, monolithic, which was multi-dimensional. And that is part of his complexity. So we'll see as we look at these individual issues. As a persona, Rabbi Soloveitchik embodied the persona of a great Torah personalities, the primary quality of which was not brilliance, but was humility. And there's a story that he was in Boston going to, in the cemetery, uh, going to the grave of uh, his wife, I believe it was. And there was a group of men who needed someone to say the prayer for the departed for them at a grave. And they saw these traditional Jews, Rabbi Soloveitchik might have been with someone. They walk over to him and said, excuse me, we don't know how to say the prayer. Could you, know, you say the prayer for us? He said, of course. And he walked over and spent time. Then they said, oh, you know, we have another relative. Would you mind? And they made the tour of the cemetery. And of course, Rabbi Soloveitchik didn't say anything. He gladly said the prayers for them. After this incident, they found out, or the person with Rabbi Soloveitchik informed them who he was, the great Rabbi Soloveitchik. Um, and they were embarrassed and wrote a letter of thanks with a donation to his school. So um, this is typical of who he was. Another story is that in class, one of the students questioned him. And as we start to talk about him as a teacher, he was... Uh, full of boundless energy. He would uh, go for hours on end teaching, yet he was intimidating. And especially in his younger years, extremely demanding and probably a perfectionist himself. And um, so students were intimidated. So the student asked a question and he shot it down. And the students kind of backed off and went to lunch at the pizza place. He's sitting there eating his pizza and who walks into the pizza place on campus? Rabbi Soloveitchik. Everyone stands up. Rabbi Soloveitchik sit down, sit down. He walks over to the table where the student is sitting. Student is mortified and he sits down. And he says, you're right. You were right. I have to apologize. And they sit there discussing the point that the student had brought up. And so Rabbi Soloveitchik got up and walked out. And this is who he was uncompromising in his search for truth, humble in his demeanor, and living for Torah and for teaching. And even though it appears that he had somewhat of a uh, shy personality, his charisma shone through at his large talks, which would draw thousands from around the whole New York area. But let's first talk about him more as a teacher. We mentioned that he was recognized as one of the greatest Talmudic minds of the last half of the 20th century. He would also was recognized as one of the great inspirational speakers. And he would have Yartzeit, which the anniversary of the passing of his 
wife, first his father, then his wife, he would give a talk, and before the high holidays, a tshuvashir, these classes would draw, as I mentioned, thousands of people from out the New York area. You can hear the recordings on yutora.org, and there's an intensity and a power to his speaking, and a beauty to his language, and to his formulation, in his written word as well as his teaching word. Sometimes he would go for three, sometimes four, even five hours, and people would sit there raptured uh, and engaged for hours on end. The first half would usually be a Talmudic analysis and then more philosophical teachings. As a teacher, he was known for the wide range of students that he engendered. And one of his students, Rabbi Moshe Meiselman, his nephew, who he studied with in Boston. Uh, Rabbi Meiselman got his PhD from MIT in math and then took a turn uh, direction which was more traditional, more ultra-Orthodox, more part of the yeshiva world. And his grandson, Rabbi Yitzi Lichtenstein, who was at Rabbi Meiselman's yeshiva when I was there, Taurus Moshe, uh, went on to become now the Rosh Yeshiva, the head of one of the big Lithuanian yeshivas in Brooklyn, one of the ultra-Orthodox yeshivas. And on the other end, he had students who were considered to be on the liberal end of modern orthodoxy. Rabbi Saul Berman, Rabbi Shlomo Riskin, uh, one of his most uh, left liberal students, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg, tells the story about how after Rabbi Soloveitchik came back with his proclamation uh, forbidding interfaith dialogue with other religions, Rabbi Greenberg was invited to an interfaith dialogue. And he planned on attending, but out of courtesy for his teacher, he wrote to Rabbi Soloveitchik telling him that he was going to attend and apologizing. Rabbi Soloveitchik told him, you don't you need not apologize. He said, I don't tell people what to do. I teach. And even though I believe this is the correct position, you have a right to disagree with me and see your outlook. Once again, we see the humility of Rabbi Soloveitchik, even with directing his students. Another quality characteristic of Rabbi Soloveitchik as a teacher is how he brought to life the scholarly rabbinic figures from the past. And particularly Maimonides, who was at the center of the brisker tradition of study, where his grandfather was from, uh, he would talk about how when his father, when he was young, his father would be teaching Maimonides to his students in their home. He would ask questions on Maimonides, they would attack Maimonides, and then his father would become the defender of Maimonides. And he was so proud of his father that he defended Maimonides. As a, as a, as a teacher, he would passionately talk about how, as he was sitting teaching his students, first his grandfather, Rav Chaim, would come in and be at his shoulder. And then Maimonides would come in and be at his other shoulder and the other personalities who were there and they would be there accompanying him as he shared the text. 
for him teaching and ideas in the rabbinic world was something that was alive for him and that was real. His uh, lament was that teachers can impart content. But the question is, how do teachers give over an experience? He said, how can I teach you that feeling during the high holidays when the cantor gets up in front of the congregation and, 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 and calls the congregation to repicture the service in the temple in Jerusalem when he himself was transported to Jerusalem, when he himself felt the chills down his back and the hair go back up in the back of his head, neck. He lamented, how do I teach that to my students? And we'll see that the experiential part of Judaism was primary for him. And at the same time, there was the Rabbi Soloveitchik, the philosopher, the PhD in philosophy. He also taught philosophy at Yeshiva University. Yet we have very few of his philosophical writings that were published when he was alive. There's a seminal article in Lonely Man of Faith. There was Halachic Man uh, and Kol Do Didofek. Uh, the voice of my beloved is knocking. And many other the, the other works were his uh, transcriptions of his speeches. After he passed away, the Halachic Mind was published posthumously. But they say that because he was such a perfectionist, he himself did not publish many of his works. And now many of the notes on the Talmud, his students, uh, on the Torah, on the Haggadah, there's an outpouring of his Torah which was absorbed by so many of his students over the years, touching on almost every aspect of Torah. The ones that distinguish him philosophically are his existential philosophy and his typologies. Let's give an example of this. In his article on the Lonely Man of Faith, he recognizes that in the beginning of Genesis, there are two, so, so to speak, creation stories. The first one in the context of the seven days of creation uh, is the creation of man from the dust of the earth. And then God uh, tells man to uh, increase and multiply uh, and to dominate the world. The second creation, sorry, the first one is God, man being created in the image of God and then being given the injunction to multiply and uh, take dominance over the world. Adam number two is the Adam who is uh, created and then is alone. Uh, and it says, not good for man to be alone. God created a helpmate opposite him, took from his rib, created his existential partner. And it's all about Adam's struggle with Eve to navigate in the Garden of Eden, good and evil, the experience of the relationship to God. And Rabbi Soloveitchik will, re will recognize, will identify these two typologies as, in a sense, the first one being scientific man, being the man who is creative, productive, dominating the world, the externalizing of man's role in molding God's world. And the second one 
is the lonely man of faith, is the man, the internal dimension of man, the emotional, the spiritual, the one that needs companionship, that feels lonely, that yearns, that it, the romance of the emotions, the seeking, the yearning for, to connect with the divine. And these two typologies he recognizes as two dimensions of the human experience. And, the, and there, there's a tension between these two aspects of man. Uh, similarly, in his work on Ish uh, Halacha, Halachic man, he recognizes Halachic man, who is the one who defines, categorizes, whose total comportment in the world is directed by Jewish law. And through Jewish law, we come to define the world around us, to recategorize the world around us through the lens of Judaism and of Torah practice. In contrast to that is homo religiensis, religious man. Religious man is the man with, once again, the inner feeling of religiosity, of desiring to come close to God, the world of the emotions, the world of spirituality and even mysticism. And there are some who say that because Rabbi Soloveitchik himself was torn between the world of traditionalism and the world of modernity, that his writing reflects constantly this theme of conflict, of tension, and tension being the path towards creativity and towards greatness, as almost a reflection of his own autobiographical path and struggle. And we'll see that that struggle, that path, played itself out in his uh, path to study secular knowledge and to go to university and to formulate a philosophy called Torah Umada, which is Torah and general knowledge. And his philosophy of Torah Umada was, or is, that uh, one can be a Jew anchored in Jewish law, in Jewish tradition, in Torah, and yet at the same time not see modernity as something threatening, but see modernity as an opportunity that Adam number one is enjoined to engage in the world. And it is through secular disciplines, through the sciences, uh, that one learns how to dominate the physical world in this godly mission, which is commanded in Genesis. It is also through the humanities that we learn to cultivate our inner emotions, our inner psychological insights, our inner selves, so that as a more sophisticated, developed personality, we can bring more of our inner qualities and our inner strengths and our inner sensitivities into our service of the divine and of God. And so for Rabbi Soloveitchik, secular studies wasn't just a practical way to have to earn a living. It wasn't just something that can help Torah develop. It's something that has an intrinsic value on, in its own uh, in developing the human side and the worldly side of man that can then enhance and be partner with the religious side of man in our godly mission in the world. 
He also saw the role of the Jew to be engaged in the world, to represent Judaism and bring it out into the world. So this is the Rabbi Soloveitchik who championed Yeshiva University, who championed study of philosophy and taught it, and who championed excellence in Torah and in secular studies. That's one distinguishing element of his modernity. Yet, all the while staying totally uh, committed to traditionalism. The other arena in which his modernity uh, came perhaps into conflict with his traditionalism was in the area of Zionism. And it's in this area that he uh, broke away from the ultra-Orthodox world of Agudat Israel, uh, which he had been a part of, Agudas Israel, and he broke away from his uncle, the Briskorov, who lived in Israel. Now, he, the Briskorov, when the State of Israel was established in 1948, could not embrace uh, the secular state. He did not embrace Yom Atzma'ut, Israel Independence Day. But Rabbi Soloveitchik notes that he was an ardent Zionist, his uncle, because his uncle insisted on coming to Israel during the Holocaust. When things were dangerous in 48, some people suggested he leave. He insisted on staying. And when his, uh, his son-in-law, his uncle's son-in-law, so this would be his cousin, moved back to the States temporarily, apparently the father, Rav, Rav uh, Velvel uh, Soloveitchik, would not speak to his son-in-law and daughter until they returned to Israel. So he said he was a passionate Zionist. But the secular state did not fit into his Torah framework of the return of the Jewish people to Zion. There was no framework for him. There was no place to put a secular country. It wasn't the Messianic epoch. So what was this? And he said, therefore, Zionism was not part of his world view. It didn't fit into his world. And Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, broke away from that traditional world, who were wary of a secular Israel state that was often anti-religious. And Rabbi Soloveitchik aligned himself with Mizrahi, with the religious Zionist movement. And in several works, Koldo Didofek, My Voice of My Beloved Calls, and in a work, The Five Addresses of Rabbi Soloveitchik, the one on Joseph and his brothers, he explains why he took this path. And he felt that the divine signs, the knocks of God on the door, that God was knocking on the door, calling the Jewish people back to Zion, and that the actualization of the Jewish state was the actualization of a divine uh, outcome. And he distinguished between two types of covenants, the covenant of fate and the covenant of destiny. This is in Kol Dido Fet. The covenant of faith is the covenant of Egypt, when God just took the Jewish people out. Uh, didn't even ask them. The covenant of destiny was Mount Sinai, where the Jewish people had to be partners and say, we will accept the Torah. And so Rabbi Soloveitchik saw the Holocaust as the covenant of fate, 
as uh, for whatever reasons, the suffering the Jewish people had to go through and that really we could not have avoided. Uh, that was brought upon us. Perhaps more could have escaped. That's a different discussion. But it was brought upon us unwillingly. Whereas the state of Israel was three years later was the affirmation of the covenant of destiny. It was the Jewish people bringing about our own destiny through Zionism, through the return to Zion. And the paradox that was brought about through the secular world, he viewed in his address on Joseph and his brothers as being the debate between Joseph and his brothers. Joseph had a dream of wheat, of the sheaves, that Joseph saw that they were in a new world. These shepherds had come to the land of Canaan and would have to become farmers. Whereas the brothers felt, no, we can stay with who we are. And so Joseph was castigated, was oppressed by his brothers because of his outlook. But in the end, it was Joseph's engagement with the world in Egypt and his standing for what he believed that brought about the salvation of the brothers, that saved their lives. And so to Rabbi Solveitchik, whose name is Joseph, saw himself disagreeing with the rest of the traditional yeshivish world. And he saw himself as the modern-day Joseph that said that the world is changing, we need to engage with modernity, we need to engage with the modern state of Israel, even if there are those who are against it. Even if there are those who say a secular state is anathema to Torah. And he viewed that the foundation that Mizrahi laid with the government, with the Yishuv, is what allowed Torah to f- help Torah to flourish after Torah Jews came to Israel after the war. And so, this is uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik went through a lot of painful moments where he was, uh, in a sense, uh, rejected by the traditional yeshiva world, where he isolated himself because of his stand and his beliefs and his positions, but he stuck to them. He always was on very good terms with his cousin, Rabbi Moshe uh, Feinstein, the leader, one of the leaders of the generation. And he had mutual respect with Rabbi Aaron Cutler and the Lubavitch Rebbe. He maintained ties on a personal rabbinic level. But on a popular level, there was a lot. He really paved his own path and often felt very alone, like a Joseph who was alienated from his brothers. Now, in terms of guiding modern orthodoxy and the issues that would come up, so we talked about, we already mentioned women's issues, that he very strongly believed in women studying Torah and even Talmud. Yet Yeshiva University, he did not agree to have the women on campus. Uh, In the 1950s, a big debate came up and the issue of separation in the synagogue of men and women. And here he also took a strong stand against mixed seating. And uh, there was a famous court case in the 1950s with an Orthodox synagogue, but he stood firm that this was an absolute standard of an Orthodox synagogue. And he and some of the more traditional rabbis would occasionally 
uh, sanction their students going into synagogues that didn't have a separation on condition that they would bring, they would be able to put up a machitza separation within a couple of years. But um, in women's issues, uh, he was a trailblazer. And he had, it came from his appreciation uh, of the, what women contributed to Jewish life. And it is eulogy for his uh, in-law, the wife of the Talna Rebbe, whose uh, son married his daughter. He talked about how a father can teach to read. And a father can teach to learn his child to observe Shabbat. He said, but a mother teaches us how to greet the Shabbat. A mother teaches how to live Shabbat for 24 hours in God's presence. A mother teaches how to experience the beauty and the splendor of Shabbat. Once again, the emphasis on the experiential dimension of Judaism, it's so difficult to grasp. And at the same time that he was progressive about women studying Torah, he drew a fine line uh, when it was asked whether women could hold the Torah and dance in Simchat Torah on, in the synagogue. He said that the tradition of the synagogue was that men danced in the synagogue with the Torah, not women. And therefore he suggested to Rabbi Saul Berman, uh, who had, or Rabbi, Rabbi Riskin, the Rabbi of Lincoln Square Synagogue, that the women would dance with the Torah downstairs in a different room. So at the same time, progressive, at the same time, balanced with uh, tradition. And this was constantly the path that was being woven. There are some who say that given the advances in the women's movement, that he would have a different outlook today. And as I mentioned earlier, um, there are many, there's a big question of how would Rabbi Soloveitchik be today? More about that at the end. Another issue of modernity was dealing with modern Orthodox rabbis, congregations, movements. And there was an attempt to broker a deal with the rabbinic assembly, the conservative body, that they would have a joint rabbinic council. And when Rabbi Soloveitchik insisted that any decisions would have to comply with, uh, one might say, the Orthodox outlook on halacha and Jewish law, the negotiations broke down. And his final position was that on issues that had to do with communal issues, we could partner, the Orthodox world would partner with the Reform and Conservative in terms of advocating for Israel, advocating for Jewish community, against anti-Semitism, funding, uh, fighting anti-Semitism. These could all be joined together, and so he did allow rabbis to join the, uh, the New York Board of Rabbis. But any issues which were internal, which had to do with um, Jewish law issues, Jewish communal issues, there was no partnering with the other movements. In addition, uh, the same posi similar position he adopted with other religions. That, as I mentioned before, he was against interfaith dialogue on religious matters, but he did say on social issues, on charitable issues, on tikkun olam issues, social justice issues, 
there the Jewish world, the religious Jewish world, could partner with the non-Jewish religious world to advance causes that were common. So once again, a subtle balance between these issues. And uh, really, it's a, it's a balancing of modernity and tradition. That's what we're seeing. And what's so interesting is that after he passed away, uh, people from the widest spectrum of outlooks would, in a sense, appropriate Rabbi Soloveitchik in their philosophy. Those who are more uh, traditional to the right would say, really, Rabbi Soloveitchik, college wasn't so important. It was all Torah. The more progressive-leaning Rabbi students would say, really, he was a... Uh, an innovator, and had he lived today, he would have gone further in women's issues, he would have gone further in uh, relations with non-Orthodox movements. Uh, which one is the real Rabbi Soloveitchik? This is the question. Uh, but we do know is that he left an incredible legacy uh, of Torah, and I strongly encourage you to uh, pick up any of his articles, books. There's much that can be found online. Uh, the Voice of My Beloved Speaks can be found in sepharia.org. His lectures and talks, the audios can be found on yutora.org, as well as his many books, many being new ones coming out every year. And he truly was a figure who, uh, who bridged the ancient world of traditional world of Europe with the modern world of America and created a movement where Torah and America would be able to flourish and Yeshiva University, modern orthodoxy, the Rabbinic Council of America was really uh, its growth, its building up uh, was really Rabbi Soloveitchik. And uh, they talk about how before World War II uh, orthodoxy was dying out. It was a losing battle. And after the war, he changed the direction. He laid the groundwork which would change the direction of orthodoxy going into the 21st century. And many of us are still his students and uh, continue his legacy. Have a good evening, everyone. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again next Wednesday.